psalm, the 19th psalm that Clint just read is where we're going to be this morning. So if you did not turn there, you want to grab your Bible and turn to the 19th chapter of Psalm. We're in a, a kind of a summer fall series. I was going to just maybe do this for the summer, but I've had so much good feedback from you that you want me to continue doing a few more psalms. So we'll probably continue this at least through September. And I appreciate your feedback. I've enjoyed it very much, just like you have. Again, we're looking at another psalm that David wrote. He, we're looking at the 19th psalm. Uh, I've entitled this, uh, God's Word, the Power to Change. God's Word, the Power to Change. I went to a conference uh, not too many years ago, and it was a Christian conference with a bunch of ministers. And so you can imagine when the question came up that the conference speaker asked how people answered it. But the question he asked was this, he said, if you were stranded on a desert island and could only have like four or five books, what would you take with you? And of course, you know this, I mean, even being in church, you know the answer to every question is Jesus or the Bible or God or something, you know, you're always going to be probably 75 or 80% right when you do that. And so everybody there, you know, when they started listing their books, they all said, oh, we'd all take the Bible with us. And uh, the conference speaker said, yeah, I get it, but what other books would you take, you know? And, and then the really super spiritual people started listing great Christian authors, you know, or commentators. Even one guy said, I would take all of Calvin's commentaries with me. And I just went, that's ridiculous. You know, why would you want to take 20 books that, you know, are even hard for most good theologians to understand? You know, I was, you know... <laughs> I mean, you know me well enough. I, there was, I, I wrote down, we were writing down the answers, and I wrote down David Platt. I'd love to have a book of his. And then uh, Francis Chan has written some books. Wearsby has some commentaries, and I would probably take one or two Wearsbys. But then, you know, I was kind of like the comics from Sunday's paper, you know, and just some things like that because I, I like that, you know, or sports books. I've, I've read a multitude of really good sports books that I really like. And, you know, I was trying to kind of fit in that 50-50 category of being spiritual enough where everybody didn't kick me out of the conference, you know, but being real enough. I know some of you guys would want to take Zane Gray and some of you ladies would love to take Francine Rivers' books with you and all that kind of stuff. I get all that. When, when we'd finished listing all our books and turned them all in, he read some of them, the, the guy that was leading the conference, and he turned to us and he said, he said, if I was stranded on a desert island, I'd just want one book with me. And we were all just kind of tuned in, you know, is he going to be like super spiritual and say the Bible? And he said, the one book that I would want with me is The Basics of Shipbuilding. <laughs> Makes sense when you think about it. I mean, you know, then you can get off the island, you can read any book you want to read. You know, it, it really makes sense when you think about it. So... This morning, as I talk to you about this book, this God's Word, it's really important for you to understand some things out of this. I mean, this is our lifeline. This is our lifeblood. Look, this, this book is great literature. It's great science. It's great history. It's great theology. But the most important thing that this book is, is a love letter to you. I mean... When you think about the effort and the time that went into writing this book, as God directed his commands toward his people, he was directing those commands 
toward those people so they would write a book to you and to me that would be his holy word to us. And it's his love letter to us. I mean, if your spouse wrote you a love letter, you would treasure it. You would keep it. You would read it. I, I, I think I may have shared this with you before. If I haven't, I just you'll forgive me if I have. But if I haven't, you'll understand kind of why I'm doing this. It, it happens usually about every other year that Laura breaks out a letter that I wrote to her. And it's totally embarrassing. But I go ahead and just put up with it because... When I was in college and I was chasing Laura, I would have done anything to have made sure that she fell in love with me. So on Valentine's Day, about uh, my, it was my first year of seminary and her first year of college. On, on that Valentine's Day, I took a, a one-page letter and I wrote about my love for Laura. Laura had just about that time, uh, declared uh, that she didn't want to date anybody else, that she only wanted to date me. And we had moved from being, well, let me rephrase that. Uh, I was dead serious from the moment I started dating Laura. Uh, Laura moved at that moment to being dead serious about dating me. For about the first six months, it was kind of like, well, you're nice, but I got other guys I want to date too. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, that's truth, isn't it? I mean, it's... Okay. Um, I can't lie. I'm in the pulpit. So. But anyhow, so, so she, she had said this to me. She said, I, I really don't want to date anybody else but you. And so I, at that moment, decided I was going to declare my love to Laura. And so I took a... You know, this was back way before cell phones and emails and all that kind of stuff. So I had to handwrite. So I, I handwrote on one piece of paper how much I love Laura, but this is the, the embarrassing part, but I'll go ahead and share this with you because it just doesn't matter anymore. But uh, I wrote, Dear Laura, I, and then I took one of those, you know those candy hearts that they do at Valentine's Day <laughs> that have words on them? I glued it in there and said, love, it said, love you. And then I kept writing, and I kept writing my sentences so that they would fit those candy hearts. So all throughout this letter is my handwriting in candy hearts glued throughout the letter. That letter is still in our freezer today. <laughs> and anytime Laura wants to be reminded of how much I love her or she chooses to want to embarrass me, she brings that letter out and says, let me show you what Bobby did for me. Look. When God wrote you this love letter, he expected you to read it, and he expected you to fall in love with it. Look, it's, it's like I told you, it's, it's great science, it's great history, it's great theology for sure. It's, it's impeccable. It's inerrant. Let me, let me make sure you hear me say this. I believe with all my heart that this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Amen. There's no error in this book. It's exactly what God wanted to give to you and to me. Listen, you may think that's normal and that's accepted and that most everybody believes that, but you could not be further from the truth. Listen, I, I have a good friend that I really like, 
a, a, a man that's older than me that was a pastor in this town uh, for many years. And, and uh, he, he left the ministry. And now when he posts things or puts things on social media, he'll talk about this book and he'll talk about it saying it's, good, it's a good read, but it doesn't necessarily have to be true. You really don't have to buy into all of it to believe it. And that's not true. The truth is that this is not a, a good read. The truth is this is God's holy word. It's, it's perfect. It was given to you and to me to read. Think about all the writing that went into this book. It was written by men and women. It was written by older people and, and younger people. It was written by educated people and some people that were just illiterate. All of that went into making this book that we now hold in our hands, this, this love letter to us. Gentiles and Jews wrote it. It's just amazing when you think about all that went into making this Bible that we hold into our hands. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. This is where I want to focus. This Bible has the power to change your life and my life. That's what's so amazing about it. It's, it's a book with a message just not to be read. It's a book with a message that's to be lived out. You're not just supposed to read this. It, if you want to ask me what probably one of my most frustrating things as a pastor and leader of people is, it's being around people who know this book and who read it but don't live it. That's what's so frustrating to me. That's, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life changing. I, I, I know people, and you probably too, too, that read this book every day and that know probably more than I know about this book, but it has not changed their lives. I always equate it with like going to the huddle of a football game and you're on you're on the offensive team and you run into that huddle and you've spent all uh, season long learning the playbook and trying to comprehend the playbook. We have so many boys here now, uh, even Cameron that was just up here praying a minute ago. He, they're in the middle of two days and, and, and they're learning the plays and they're learning how to run the plays and, and the, the coach is encouraging them on, on being the best they can be. And it would be just like that, just be like Cameron going into that huddle, learning what the play is after all that study, all that preparation. The quarterback calls the play, and they all run up to the line, and Cameron says, well, I'm not going up to the line to run the play. I, I, I know what the play is. I've practiced it, but I'm just staying here, and I'm just going to go let them run the place. Well, we, we can't be that way anymore. I, people have asked me, and I think I shared a few weeks with you ago with you about uh, David Platt writing the book Radical and, and how it changed my life. But the reason y y you miss something, if you don't, uh, don't hear me say this, the reason Radical changed my life is because Radical takes the precepts of God and basically David Platt says, we're not just supposed to read this book, we're supposed to live this book out. I, I, I was telling Jerry just a minute ago, Jerry Jones is sweet. Uh, gave me a book, uh, her and her husband said, hey, we want you to read this book called The Insanity of God. 
uh, by a guy named, uh, oh gosh, is it Nick Ripkin? Is that it? And that's a pseudonym uh, because he's a, a missionary and he didn't want his name to be out. Uh, but I, I'm halfway through the book, and I didn't even tell Jerry this a second ago, but uh, when, when you asked me to read that book, I, got, I went on the Amazon, ordered it, and it came in, and Laura and I went on this short vacation Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And so I grabbed that book to take with me, and while we were driving down to Galveston, there's a, a sweet uh, missionary uh, child. Let's see if I can phrase this right so you'll understand it. Uh, about 25 years ago, Jerry's parents, Terry and Twyla, went to the mission field in Africa. And um, uh, they had two kids when they left to go. But they had one daughter uh, living in Tanzania. And on my first journey to Africa, we got to see Jerry for the first time. And uh, then uh, a few years later, when we went back to Africa, Jerry was eight years old. And uh, she had accepted the Lord. And they uh, asked me when I came, they said, Jerry wants you to baptize her. Uh, they called Laura and I, Aunt Laura and Uncle Bobby. And uh, so when, when I went back to Africa when Jerry was eight years old, I, I baptized her in a, in a, in a uh, luggage carrier uh, that they used to transport luggage on top of their Range Rover. We filled it with water and I baptized. That picture is in my office right now if you want to see it. Uh, so Jerry, <laughs> this is aging me, but Jerry is now a junior at uh, Hardin-Simmons. And she came by to see us the other day. And so we visited, had this great visit. She left, and when we were driving down to Galveston, Jerry and, and Laura were texting, and Jerry was thanking us uh, for just hanging out with her the other day. And we were telling Jerry how much we loved her, how much we appreciated her. And she texted to Laura, she said, have you or Uncle Bobby ever read The Insanity of God? And uh, Laura turned to me and said, hey, have you ever read The Insanity of God? And I said, look in the back seat. And there was The Insanity of God in the back seat. So I, I knew that, um, that the Lord wanted me to read it. So I was telling Jerry just a little while ago, I'm about halfway through it now. But the fascinating thing of reading that book and, and I'll share with you more about it later. But the fascinating thing is that Nick uh, basically says uh, we have got to live our lives for God. We can't just keep playing this game anymore. Uh, we've got to read this book. We've got to believe it. And then we've got to be willing to live out our lives uh, according to God's word. And, and that God's word does have the power to change our lives. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that with all our heart. So understanding that and understanding kind of what God's been doing with us here at Holly Springs, but also how he's working in your life personally, let me share with you three or four things that I believe uh, that this word can do for you, how, how God's word can powerfully transform your life and change your life to where it's not just a checking the box uh, Christianity anymore, not where you check into church and check out and think that God's all happy with you. Uh, not that he's not. I, I believe that God's thrilled that you're here, but I think that God wants it to be an everyday, every moment kind of event in your life, not just a, a Sunday thing or a Wednesday thing or every once in a while thing. So how do we do that? 
Can this book help us do that? And the answer with all my heart, I believe, with all my heart is yes. Without a doubt, this book can help you do that. So let's, let's look at a few things from what David says here in Psalm 19. What can this holy book do for you? We'll look at Psalm 19. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Do you know that this book can revive your soul? I mean, that's, that's what David just says here. Because some of you are in that place in your life where you just want to be revived and renewed, and, and you're trying to figure out how to do it. You know, I told you that Laura and I went for uh, just a couple of days to Galveston, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We, so we left Thursday afternoon and came back Saturday afternoon. So we, we weren't gone for just a day or two. But Laura and I had both decided that we just needed some time to just renew ourselves. Well, just as much as we needed a couple of days away, you understand that God's Word can revive and renew you every day. It can make you fresh every day. Um, listen, in, in Nehemiah, if you, if you were to flip back in, in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, uh, you would find a place there uh, where Nehemiah is dealing with the Israelites. In the Israelites, uh, Jerusalem had a wall around it. And that wall had slowly deteriorated to where it was nothing. And uh, they just let it go. And, and Nehemiah helped them uh, to rebuild the wall. And, and when they rebuilt the wall, they did it in, in an incredible uh, quickness that nobody expected could be done because uh, Nehemiah just led them so well. In fact, there's many books written about leadership uh, that revolve around Nehemiah's life, and because he did that. Um, it, it, when, when I was studying for this morning, I, I really thought about uh, our situation over here with our generations building, about how we have to rebuild a little bit, and how the Lord can help us to do that, uh, and how he can help us to rebuild and renew and, and revive things, how he can take a time like this. It's exact, not exactly, but it was almost the same thing that Nehemiah was was dealing with. He was dealing with people uh, that to a certain extent had let things go or, or kind of uh, a, maybe a better way to explain it would be they just kind of relaxed and become comfortable in where they were. And so uh, the things had deteriorated. And so Nehemiah said, we've got to rebuild this wall to protect us. Uh, and so he, he led them to do that. Now, here's what's great about that Nehemiah book and that Nehemiah passage, especially chapter 8. I just want to read a few verses out of it. But here's what's fascinating about it. As the people were led by Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, they began to realize that they had kind of uh, got lackadaisical with God. And so they asked Ezra, listen, listen to what, what it says. This is... Uh, chapter 8 of Nehemiah. You don't have to go there, but you can listen to what it says because this is fascinating. After they had rebuilt this wall, this is what uh, the Israelites said to Ezra. They said, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. So what's basically happening here is the people have rebuilt the wall and they're coming together for church. And this, listen to what they said. 
They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. You see, they'd, they'd gotten kind of lazy, and they'd gotten away from paying attention to the book. And, and so after Nehemiah had helped them rebuild the wall and, and do everything that kind of rekindled their spirits and renewed their spirits, then they said, hey, Ezra, go grab the Bible. And will you come? And today, will you just read the Bible to us? Listen to what happens. So on the first day of the seventh month, that's a Sunday, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and all those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively as Ezra read the book of the law. Now listen, this is the kind of church service you don't want, I don't want either. We'll meet at the church at daybreak, and we're going to read six hours straight till noon. Now I, I get that. I mean, I know that's not how we do church now. But what I want you to get if you get anything out of here, is the power of God's word. You see, because what they said is, look, you don't have to embellish it. You don't have to tell us stories. You don't have to give us any kind of illustrations. Will you just read it and remind us how much God loves us? Listen, listen to what he said. Listen to what it says. This is a few verses down. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. Kind of where you get the idea of church now. You know, you have a platform, you read the book, and you're standing above. All the people were, uh, could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. You ever been in a church where uh, when they read the word, they ask the people to stand? That's where it comes from. Uh, because that's what Ezra did. Uh, and and uh, the people, the Israelites, uh, knew that how important the word of God is. It's not a bad thing. Don't think we're wrong. Don't think we should be punished for sitting. But I think it's a pretty cool thing that every once in a while we stand up when we read God's word. But listen, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You get what's going on here? I mean, they're having some serious church. They're having some real serious church. And the real serious church means that, uh, that people are listening to God's word and they're saying, amen, that's right. What that book says is right. And that's how we're supposed to live our lives. And then they, then they bow down and, and they worship God and say, God, this book you've given us is an amazing book. That's what the book can do for you. This book can revitalize and renew your life. Read it, study it, learn it, because it can, has the power to absolutely change you forever. Second thing is this book can help make you look wise. We need that. Some of us, for sure, need that. We need the ability to look wise. Listen, I, I wrote down just kind of my definition. Wisdom is the ability to solve problems and get results. Wisdom... I, I like to look at it this way. Wisdom is common sense. It's just plain old common sense, doing the right thing. Look at 
verse 9. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever, and the ordinances of the Lord are sure, and they're altogether righteous. That's Psalm 19.9. What, what that basically saying is you, the, these guidelines that God gives us can help you to live your life correctly. Have you, have you ever thought about this? The Bible is full of wisdom, full of it, and it's on every subject that you've ever known. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, so there's nothing in here about the Internet. How in the world are we supposed to treat the Internet? Because God never put anything in the Bible about the Internet. Oh, yes, he did. I mean, in the Bible, the Lord talks all about your mind and how you're supposed to guard it. So if, if you're using the Internet for uh, some kind of, you know, bizarre kind of situations where you're getting some kind of gratification that, that you think is, is okay, but you know that the Bible says is not okay, then you're going against the wisdom of God for your life. And man, there's, there's things in the Bible that teach you how to deal with that. Um, you know, if, if your computer is, is hidden in some back room where you can only see it and you know that you struggle with it, then you need to pull that computer out and you need to put it in the living room where anybody walks by can see what you're doing. You know, Laura and I have uh, our computer uh, in, in our office. I, I, it's not back in, in the bedroom. It's not back hidden in some room. It's in the office. Because when I'm on the computer and Laura walks by, I don't want to be ashamed of anything I'm looking at. My computer in my office faces the door. My back is to the door. When I'm on my computer, my back's on the door. And if Stephanie happens to walk in and I'm on some website that I'm not supposed to be on, I'm not going to see Stephanie walk in, but she's going to see the website that I'm on. Right? It's, just, it's just common sense to me. It's just me trying to put the wisdom of what God has taught me about this in here. You want to know who you're supposed to marry? It's in here. I mean, it doesn't have his name listed. You know, you can't, unless maybe his name's David or something like that. But, but it, it, it lists in here who you're <coughs> supposed to marry and, and the kind of person you're supposed to marry. You, you want to look for the right lady in your life? Read Proverbs 31 and then find that lady because that's the kind of lady you want to marry. Every, everything that you ever wanted to know really is in, is in this book. You know, I, I get people that come to me all the time and talk to me about, you know, well, it doesn't say anything about marijuana in there or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, it does. You know, it most certainly does. It talks about every subject you would ever want to know. And, and there's wisdom that's worth digging for in this book. Well, the third thing is this. The Bible can help you to live without fear. You know, that's a big deal. If, if you look at verse 9 again, it, it kind of helps you to understand that the fear of the Lord is pure. So really the only fear that you and I are supposed to have is the fear of the Lord. You shouldn't fear anything else. 
I wrote this down because I think it's important for you to hear me say this. The Christian life is a life of certainty. Let me say that again. The Christian life is a life of certainty. You don't have any doubt. If you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to have any, any doubt about what you're doing. I was going to say this a minute ago, and I lost my train of thought, but I'm back at it again with the, uh, the insanity of God. In, in the very introduction of that book, uh, he, he writes this. He says, you know, I, I heard a lot of people uh, when I was growing up tell me this, and, and this is the, the statement. You've probably heard this too, and, and I'm talking about Nick uh, Rifkin, the author, uh, said this growing up, but I heard it growing up too because as soon as I read it, I thought, man, I've heard that all my life too. And, and the statement is this. The safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. Right? Any of you heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard the safest place you can ever be in the center of God. It's about 50% of you. The, the other percent were either too scared to raise their hand or they didn't pay attention when somebody was telling them. Think about that statement for a minute. <laughs> I never thought about it. But he went on to write. He went, that's crazy. Have you ever thought about that before? Because it, it makes sense. If I'm in the center of God's will, I'm in the safest place I can be. You know what, what that all depends on? Is what your definition of safe is. Because a lot of people will hear that and they say, man, if I'm in the center of God's will, nothing's ever going to happen to me. You know, I'm, I'm safe. But how do you explain that to all the martyrs who have gone before us, who have sacrificed their life, for the kingdom cause. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being at the, mur uh, the funeral of a martyr and somebody said, well, he was safe in the center of God's will. They just happened to hang him upside down, crucify him. They cut off his head because he was safe in the center of God's will. And the, the, the truth is, Every martyr that's gone before us had nothing to fear because they were in God's will. And let, me, let me bring this out even more. You have nothing to fear as a believer in Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fear because he's promised us certainty. I mean, listen to this. You've heard this a thousand times, but listen to this. This is Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that he has been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. And as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen to me. If you've called on the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have anything to fear. I, I, you know, I, I tell you this all the time, and, and, and I get it. It does not make me mad. But when people come up to me when we talk about going on mission trips and they ask about safety, I, I just have to bite my tongue. 
Because the Christian life is not about being safe. It's about having no fear. There's a big difference. Walking with Jesus does not guarantee safety, but it guarantees you don't have to be afraid. This, the, the Insanity of God, this book that I'm reading, the reason the author is anonymous uh, is because he, he's taking food into Somalia in, in the 90s. You, a lot of you, you don't have to raise your hand. I've seen it. A lot of you have seen Black Hawk Down, the, the movie where so many American soldiers are killed trying to uh, involve themselves in a raid on Mogadishu. His camp was one mile away. This missionary for the gospel was one mile away when that was occurring. Now, I'm not saying that all of us need to pick up and go to the most dangerous place in the whole world. That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what he's saying. It's not what the Bible's saying. But the Bible in the Great Commission says that we're supposed to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not only to the safe places. I, this, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I mean, when, when I was at first uh, and I was meeting with the missions, the missions committee was meeting with the finance team about a trip that we were going to take to Southeast Asia to a communist country. And when, when we were trying to explain the costs that would be involved, somebody on the finance team said these exact words. I don't know if we want our money being spent on communists. Look, that, that guy has a good heart. He really does. I've known him for a long time. And I, I would do anything for that guy because he's just a kind-hearted guy. But I'm here to tell you, the gospel is to be taken to communists, to Buddhists, to Muslims, to people of different skin color, to people that are skinny, that are fat, that are ugly, that are beautiful. It doesn't matter. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for every living human being. And we are called to take it to those people until he comes. And we don't have to be in fear to do that. It, Think about this. Your, your future, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your future's sealed. It's a done deal. And if, and if you don't believe that, you need to come talk to me. And, and if you're hesitant about it, I get it. Come talk to me. But I want you to know that this word, all throughout it, throughout Romans, throughout 1 John, uh, it, it, it continues over and over again to talk about our future is guaranteed to us, not because of anything that we did, because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. You didn't earn anything, but he did it all for you so you could have a future. And if your future is sealed, you don't have to have any fear. So, last thing. Last thing. This Bible can guide your life. But you have to let it. it, it it's completely up to you. Look at, look at verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Look back at verse 11. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. If you keep these commandments, if you keep these teachings, if you keep this word within your heart, the, the scripture says that there is great reward. Listen, <laughs> the Bible's not, not magic. It's miraculous. This is, this is not about a magic book. This is a miraculous book. It can change your life forever if you will let it. It's just whether you'll let it or not. You know, I, I, I run into this all the time when, when I'm sharing with people. Uh, when you're sharing the gospel with people, it eventually comes down to they have to make the choice, not you. They have to make it. You can't force someone into salvation. Somebody has to be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit to accept the Lord and to walk with the Lord. It's their choice. It's the same with us. Once you've made that choice, will you live and follow this miraculous book? I'm sure I, nobody knows who wrote this. I wish we did. I wish I could give credit. But I love what it says. This is what I want to close this morning with. This book, this book, is the mind of God. It's the state of man. It's the way of salvation. It's the doom of sinners and it's the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are mutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell are closed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory. It's a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary. It will lead you to the empty tomb. It will lead you to a resurrected life in Christ. And yes, it will lead you to glory and to eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the book that you gave us, the love letter that you wrote to us. God, we know that it has the power to change our life. Father, we would ask that you would not allow us to take it lightly, that you would allow us to study it, to become fervent disciples of your word. Father, because we know that it has the power to change our lives forever. Father, as we enter into a time where we can reflect upon what you have been saying to us, God, may you use this time through the power of the Holy Spirit to pierce people's hearts for the kingdom. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, Jason is going to lead us as we enter into a time of worship again. This is also a time of invitation. Perhaps 
you've been looking for a church family and you're looking for a place uh, to place your life or your family's lives and you want to be a part of Holly Springs, we would love for you to be a, a part of our family. Perhaps you have been listening as I've been sharing God's word this morning and, and you don't understand what it means to be a believer. You don't understand what it means to have faith in Christ. Nothing would give me more pleasure than to share with you what it means to begin a walk with Jesus Christ in faith and be forgiven of your sins. Perhaps you need an altar just to come and pray and ask God for things that have been on your heart this week. Perhaps you just want to talk to him about your relationship with him. Whatever decision you need to make, my prayer is that the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit would give you the courage and the strength to do whatever you need to do this morning as we stand together and as we worship the Lord.